Okay? I'm glad you're here. Uh, we've entered into this awesome month uh, called Adar, which is um, just the month of joy, the month of happiness. It's uh, the month of Purim that Purim falls in. Um, we'll talk about all these things together, but also I want to talk about the um, kind of the structure of the world. And I want to talk about also the, the Torah, what the Torah is and what the Torah isn't. <clears throat> especially the opening um, account of creation, because I think that it's really important to understand how to properly approach it to appreciate what's there, you know? I mean, I'm I'm thinking of like a a crazy example, but can you imagine you look at the Mona Lisa, right? And then like, or a great work of art, and then you show it to someone, you say, look, isn't it? It's magnificent, isn't it? And the person says, how many miles to the gallon does it get? And it's like, what are you talking about? It's a piece of art. And they're saying, you know, I don't even know if I could drive that. Could I even drive it out of the room? It's like they're, they're looking at it with a completely wrong set of eyes. It's a piece of... So, so when we're looking at the Torah, we have to make sure that we're, we're appreciating what it is. You know, because a lot of times people, uh, they think it's something else, and then they find all sorts of problems with it, you know, like uh, uh, there's a classic Hasidic story. I, I wish I could tell you the Rebbe w- who said this, but there's someone who's can I don't want to say complaining, but you know, sharing their their sorrows, their 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 heartbreak with the Rebbe, and and saying, um, you know, that uh, you know this is all wrong, and this is all wrong, and I'm suffering in this way, and this way, and this way, and they conclude they say, you know, I I I don't believe in God. And the Rebbe says back to the person, you know what, I also don't believe in God. And, and the person shocked and says, Rebbe, you don't believe in God? And, and the Rebbe says back to this person, listen carefully, the God that you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Meaning to say that you have this crazy idea of what God is and what God isn't. And it's completely off. And, and so how could, I, I also don't believe in that God. So, so, so much of, so much of approaching life, approaching an understanding of, of truth and everything like that, is trying to get the, the correct premise, the, the correct appreciation of, of what it is that we're looking at. Because if, if we don't have that, if, you're, if, you're, if your main complaint about the, 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 the Japanese restaurant is that, that how could you have a Japanese restaurant without spaghetti and tomato sauce. Like, if your main complaint about the Japanese restaurant is that it's not an Italian restaurant, <laughs> you know, then I, I don't know that you're thinking properly. So we have to first understand what this world is and, and what, what is there. And then if we have issues, all right, then we have issues. There's plenty of room for issues. There will never be a lack of opportunity to have issues. But let's at least have issues with what's actually there so that we're dealing with truth and we're dealing in reality. Then we can do the next steps, you know? So, so like I say, there are a lot of beautiful things to talk about, but I realized that uh, last week I was telling you a bunch of stories about my, my trip to Israel for my son's uh, Mendy's Bar Mitzvah, and, and I forgot maybe, may, maybe my favorite story, or maybe certainly one of them. So I just want to share that with you, and, um, and that might serve as an introduction into um, what we'll talk about some more later. 
So um, about, I don't know what it was, um, I think it was about 24 years ago, I, I had a period of studying for about three weeks at uh, Birka Satora, a, a yeshiva in Yerushalayim, uh, then led by uh, the great uh, Rabbi Green, who's now in uh, Phoenix. And, and it was a, just a, a wonderful experience. I was actually one of the first students to, to attend the yeshiva. And um, anyway, so, so in this most recent trip, cut to, I guess, about 25 years later, we're, we're walking past the yeshiva, and I thought, oh, well, you know, let's uh, knock on the door. So I knock on the door, and they open up the door, and a couple of people are there, and I recognize uh, someone, and someone else recognizes me. So me and a couple of people are standing outside the yeshiva, and the, the door is open, and they're talking uh, from inside the yeshiva, and we're talking for a couple of minutes, and all of a sudden it hits me, something is very wrong. I'm on the outside of the yeshiva, and they're on the inside. What am I doing outside in the street? You know, so I said to them, I said, listen, you've done a great job of keeping us out of the yeshiva, but now we're going in. So I walked into the yeshiva, and I really did not plan on doing any learning because I was with the family, and we were going to, we were spending some family time. So, but I thought to myself, okay, now that I'm in the yeshiva, I got to learn something. But I, I really felt as though I didn't have any time to learn. So I thought, I, I'm just going to learn one verse, and that's it. I'll learn one verse from the Torah, so at least I'll sit down and have learned something, and then I'll go. By the way, I, it, this always reminds me of uh, what I think is one of the, the great, uh, one of the classic uh, Jewish stories. Um, someone came to Rabbi Israel um, Salanter, the, the head of the Musser movement. Musser, the Musser movement was really kind of um, uh, the other part of Europe's answer to the Hasidic movement in a lot of ways. This is how I heard Rabbi Wein explain it anyway. That it also was trying to instill fire and passion, but in the more what we call the Litvish world, by creating a, a real passion for um, just uh, piety, but in the more sort of like just higher and higher uh, levels of, of ethical development. So, so Rabbi Israel Salanter, someone came up to him and said, I only have 10 minutes a day to learn Torah. So should I learn Musr, right? Or should I learn Talmud, right? Because I only have 10 minutes a day to learn Torah. So Rabbi Salanter said to him, you should learn Musr. Because if you learn Musr 10 minutes a day, you realize that you have more than 10 minutes a day to learn Torah. So, so I thought to myself, okay, that aside, that aside, I, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to go into Birkasa Torah. I have time to learn w one verse from the Torah, and then I'm going to go back out shopping with the family, okay? So I thought to myself, well, you know, if I'm only going to learn one verse in the entire Torah, what's it going to be, right? So I thought to myself, well, let me be methodical about this. So there's seven days in the week, and there's seven aliyahs in a, in a parsha. Each portion of the week has seven sections. So the way some people learn the portion of the week is they'll learn one section a day, right? Corresponding to the day, and that's how you do it. So I thought, okay, today is Tuesday. That's the third aliyah. That's the third section of the, the weekly portion. So I'll learn the first 
verse from the third aliyah. You know, I was just trying to be methodical about it. So I sit down, I open up the, the, uh, the Chumash, and I, I learn that, that verse. And what is it? It's talking about if you have animals that do property damage to someone else's field, you're responsible for that, for that property damage. Okay. Which, I, which, if you think about it, we take, we, we, that all seems very logical and clear. But, you know, a lot of people would have said, I didn't do it, my animal did it. Right? Especially in, in sort of like contemporary society. No one wants to take responsibility, right? So the Torah is telling you, you have to take responsibility. So there's a very, very good message there. Now, now there's, it, it's more detailed than that, actually. Now, here's the crazy part. Here's the reason why I'm telling you this story. I told you that I had learned in this yeshiva, in Birkas Torah, 25 years earlier. And I had done this three-week stretch there. What did we study during that three-week stretch? That verse. <laughs> wow. And what is that portion of the week about? Parshas Mishpatim? The connection between the oral law and the written law and how they're all one. So look at this phenomenal thing, right? 25 years. 25 years. And so what does this tell you? God is not just paying attention to what we learn, right? But where we learn. <laughs> Can you imagine how, how precise everything is? Okay, so, so now that we're talking about how precise everything is, let's talk about how hidden everything is. <laughs> because there isn't a contradiction between the precision of things and the concealment of things. You see, like, you know, my, my dad used to play a game with us growing up. I guess he often had a pocket full of change. And he'd reach into his pocket, pull out the change, and then he'd let us glimpse it for one second, and then close it, close his hand. And he'd ask us, how much money does he have in his hand? And then if we guessed it, we got the money. I don't think I ever guessed it, you know? You're like looking at the pennies, but you're thrown by the dimes and the quarters, and it's, it's, it's kind of a hard task. But just because the hand is closed doesn't mean there isn't an exact number of change in the closed hand. In other words, something can be very precise, but it can also be hidden, right? And the fact that it's hidden doesn't make it less precise. Do you understand? So this is the way the world is. Everything is very hidden, but it doesn't mean that it's any less precise. We think the definition of precise, and I'm talking about when we use our emotional logic right now, like from when we try to, when, when it gets all complicated, from our emotional standpoint, we think if, I, if it's not clear to me, then it's not clear. But there can be a very precise answer. Just because you don't know it doesn't mean it's any less exact. Okay, so this, by the way, and we're going to get more into it later, but this, by the way, I think is one of the explanations. We're going to go into this more later, but let me just float this idea and, 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 we'll, and, and we'll go deeper into it. This is one of the reasons, I believe, that the Jewish day begins at nighttime and then goes to daytime. 
In other words, God is telling you, first you have to understand a lot of reality is going to be concealed. At nighttime, you can't see. Then comes the daytime. Then eventually, it's going to become clear to you. You see, this world, this is one of, you know, Reb, Reb Shlomo had a category of teachings that he would refer to as cash Torahs. So what's a cash Torah? That's something that you have to have in your pocket at all times. Okay? So in other words, it's like, don't, you shouldn't have to think about this. This is like, you, you got it ready. So for me, this is a cash Torah. This is an example of a cash Torah. The fact that the, the word in Hebrew, remember, God created the world out of the Hebrew letters. Okay, so, so the, the Hebrew language, it's like Reb Shlomo said one time, when the wind rustles through the trees, the sound that it makes is in Hebrew. Okay, so Hebrew is the language of nature. It's a description of really the, the, the natural order. So what, how do we say the word world in Hebrew? It's olam, olam. Now the root of the word olam in Hebrew is ayin, lamid, mem. Elam means hidden. In other words, God is hidden in this world. The word world itself tells you this idea about hiddenness. So, you know, when someone says in English we have an expression, that's as clear as day. As clear as day means that I absolutely can understand it, right? So isn't it interesting that the Jewish day starts at night when you can't see? It's as clear as day. You mean you understand it? No, I mean I exactly don't understand it. But I will understand it because light follows the darkness. We begin with darkness, then we get to light. Okay, so we're going to go more into this. We're going to go more into this. But, um, and I want to talk about, again, I want to talk about this month that we're in because it's a very exciting month. It's the month of joy, Adar. It's huge. It's a huge month. It's a month of really miracles and salvation and all sorts of great things. Um, but before we get to that, before we get to that, I, I, I do want to just discuss an aspect of the Torah. Okay? And again, getting back to this idea, what the Torah is and what the Torah isn't, okay? So a lot of people have problems because they, they, especially in the initial count of creation, they want to see certain things talked about and they're not seeing these things talked about. And they get very frustrated. And it makes them question like, well, what is the Torah? What's going on with the Torah? Where's the whole account of the dinosaurs? Where's all the Cro-Magnon men? Where's, where's all this stuff? Okay, so, and it, it upsets them. Okay? So, so, let's take a few steps back. And again, the goal of what I'm about to tell you is just that we should appreciate what the Torah is and what it isn't. Um, it's not a history book. And it's not a science textbook. It's a compilation of teachings. That's all that it is. Okay? Um, so, so I just want to run through two things kind of quickly, but I think that these are sort of foundational concepts that it's important for us to think about and go over. Which is, let's, in talking about the creation of human beings, 
Let's say, according to modern science, let's go with modern science's thinking on this subject. According to modern science, let's say all of life began with a single cell, right? And evolved from a single cell into human beings as we know them today. So let's say this is accurate, that it all begins with a single cell. So my question is this, where did the single cell come from? And where did all of time and space for the cell to exist in come from? So for me, the answer is Hashem. <laughs> all right, now let's talk about it on a more macro level. Let's talk about the Big Bang Theory. Now, by the way, Torah anticipated the Big Bang Theory thousands of years ago. We, we, we had this idea before science arrived at it. But without going into that right now, let's just talk about the theory itself. There's a single point of matter, and it explodes out and creates all the universes. Right? So again, my question is, where did that single point of matter come from? And where did the fabric of time and space come from that this point was situated in? Again, it goes back to God. So once you begin with the notion as a premise of an all-powerful God, what, what can't God do? God can do absolutely anything. All right? Now, let's apply this to the beginning of the creation narrative, in the beginning of Breshis. It's a couple of pages long. All right? So, so what, if it's to include everything that God knew and did, because what is science? Science is just a description of how God does things. That's all science is. So if the beginning of Breshis, of the beginning of the Torah, is really to be properly complete, let's think about what it has to include. All of astronomy, all of geology, all of physics, all of biology, all of chemistry, which means we'd have to, to properly do justice to the first pages of the creation of the world have all of the information from all of the science textbooks in the entire world, plus science only goes so far because we don't know how to create something out of nothing. So we need all of the information from all of the science textbooks in the entire world, plus information that we don't even know yet, which probably greatly outweighs all that we do know. And what's there? A couple of pages. So one has to understand that everything is written in an exceedingly concealed way. It's all concealed. So to take a document that's completely concealed and that's, that's, that's what it is, we have to appreciate what it is, and then to say, well, where's this and where's that? What are we dealing with right now? Everything is being left out. So, so again, I just, we, we, we began today's talk by saying that people can have all sorts of questions and all sorts of problems, but at least let's know what we're dealing with. Let's appreciate something for what it is. Right? 
Again, if you go to a Japanese restaurant and your biggest complaint is that ravioli, right? It's not on the menu. That this is the worst Italian restaurant that I've ever been to. Like, let's first appreciate the fact that, okay, for starters, you're at a Japanese restaurant. You're not at an Italian restaurant. You don't like the Japanese food, that's something else. But let's at least appreciate what you're dealing with. And then you can go through your complaints and your questions and all sorts of issues. So again, when we're dealing with the Torah, we have to understand that the Torah is, you know, it's, it's just like, it's a compilation of teachings. It's not, a, it's not a history textbook. It's not a science textbook. It's the tip of 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 the iceberg of what's going on in terms of reality. And that's why in this class, I always like to talk about all these other techniques to mining the depths of it. That's why we talk about gematria. That's why we talk about atbash. That's why we talk about all these different systems of, of mining the depths of it. Because it's, you know, I always like to think of like, in astronomy, they've got these stars that are called dwarf stars, which are incredibly condensed, 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 condensed stars. And I read one time, like in high school, college, whatever it was, that a teaspoon, a teaspoon's worth of like matter from a dwarf star weighs billions of pounds. Right? It's, it's crazy. So what's in one verse of the Torah? Right? Especially when you're talking about the opening passages of the Torah. What's in one verse of the Torah if we could unpack it? Okay. Now, I want to go on to Adar. Because it's, uh, like I say, this is an amazing month. And um, now, everybody knows that there's 12 months to the year. Okay? And it's... It's, uh, let's approach it this way. You see, Adar is the last month of the year. Now, the first month of the year, imagine like a ladder. The very first month of the year is the month of Nisan. Nisan has the word Nes in it, which means miracles. It's the month where we celebrate Pesach. Of course, you have the ten plagues and all the splitting of the Red Sea and all sorts of miracles and everything like that. It's the very first month of the year. And so it's the, the level of revelation in it is very great. And each month of the year, the 12 months of the year, each one has a different permutation of the name of Hashem, of the Yudke Vavke. So, so interestingly, the, um, the arrangement of the letters of Hashem's name for Nisan is Yud and then He and then Vav, and then He. Meaning to say it's the straight spelling of Hashem's name. It's not scrambled at all, because it's all about open revelation. That's this idea of miracles, it being the month of miracles. Okay? So that's Nisan. That's all the way at the top. Now, Adar is all the way at the bottom. <laughs> Adar is the 12th month of the year. Okay? And, and every month has a tribe that correlates with it, Okay, so Nisan has the tribe of Yehuda. Mashiach is a descendant of Yehuda. So again, you know, it makes sense. Yehuda is like at the top. That's Mashiach, right? Now, who's the tribe all the way that associates with Adar, which is the furthest distance from Nisan? Naphtali, which can also be read Nafalti, which means I fell. Because again, it's 
all the way at the end. And what's, what takes place in the month of Adar? The holiday of Purim. What's Purim all about? Total concealment. Right? It looks like God is going to wipe us out and then somehow it works out that we get saved and we actually become victorious over our enemies. But there's no splitting of the sea. There's no bread falling down from heaven. The nature of the miracle is totally concealed. And yet, when you look back at the story from a distance, you go, oh my God, God was absolutely guiding all of historical events, but he was doing it in an utterly concealed way. Okay. So now, now you see something really interesting. Okay? Which is that here is Nisan all the way at the top. And here's Adar below. Right? So, so Adar, again, it's, it's God working within the darkness. That's the 12th month, the furthest from Adar. Furthest from Nisan, rather. But now watch this. Because time is actually a spiral. <laughs> it doesn't just go up and down. It's not, it's not a linear construction. We actually go, it gets, goes around and around, and it gets wider and it gets wider. And, and with this in mind, if you can imagine like a spiral, you have certain days which are holidays. Like let's say leaving Egypt, for instance, right? That's Pesach. So maybe here's toward the bottom of the spiral, right? And you have an ever-expanding spiral. That's, that's the ever-widening spiral. And you can picture it going up in larger and larger um, circles. So let's say on the bottom you have the Pesach, the day that we left Egypt. And that energy from Pesach shoots through time, like a geyser. It shoots through time. So every time you go around the calendar and you enter the time of Pesach again, you're actually entering the day of Pesach, the original day of Pesach, the original energy of Pesach, which is shooting through time. That's why we talk about all the holidays. We're not just observing the anniversary of them, we're actually re-entering the initial energy of the holidays themselves. That's why it's like such a, an amazing thing. This is why Judaism also, Torah, is so experiential. You have to be able to enter into these, these periods because they, you, can, you can feel the energy is different. You feel something special. Different gates open. Different opportunities present themselves. Very, very special. Okay. So now, remember, it's going around and it's going around. And if it's going around, what does that mean? That means that Adar, which is the last month of the year, then goes right into Nisan, which is the first month of the year. Right? So, so it's sort of like, don't think of it as a long string, Think of it as a circle where the ends meet, where, where Adar is actually the closest to Nisan, where you've got the darkest time, and the darkest time is right connected to the lightest time. Okay. So, so now with that in mind, this year is a leap year. This year we have two months of Adar. So the question is, which month would you celebrate Purim in? 
the first month of Adar or the second month of Adar? So you could say the first month of Adar because you want to run to do a mitzvah, right? You want to do it as fast as you can. But the answer is the second month of Adar because the sages said that they want to connect the redemption of Purim as close as possible to the redemption of Pesach. Okay? The redemption that took place in the darkest time to the greater redemption that's taking place in the lighter time. Again, what did we say the structure of, of, of the world is, of the day is? Night going into day. Darkness going into revelation. Right? The concealed going into the revealed. This is how Hashem made the world. Okay. Now listen to this. Let's talk about the structure of everything right now. So, so we know there are 12 months to the year. And we also know that there are 12 tribes. And we also know that um, all of these tribes correlate with the constellations and the zodiac signs in the sky. Okay? And, and so this number 12 is really talking about the natural order of things. And I want to give you a brief history of some 12s in the Torah, okay? Which is um, the first real 12, you can say, is the 12 tribes, okay? And, and it was important that Yaakov Avinu have these 12 tribes because, again, these, these tribes were correlating with the universe, okay? So... The Medrash teaches that when Yaakov Avinu was about to leave this world, um, the sons were gathered around his, his deathbed. And Yaakov Avinu was, was, Jacob, our father, was very concerned that, that his descendants should never worship idols. And so they tried to reassure him before he leaves this world. And remember, Yaakov had another name, which is Yisrael, Israel. So the sons say to Jacob, Shema Yisrael, hear Israel, hear our father, hear Israel, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, right? God is one, and, and that's, that's what we're going to do till the end of time. We're only worshiping the one God. And then Jacob says back to them, Baruch Shem Kavod Machuso Le'elam Ve'ed. Okay? Now, look at this. If you count the words, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, that's six. Baruch Shem Kavod Machuso Le'olam Va'ed, that's also six. So six and six is twelve. In other words, this declaration of the oneness of God and the praise of God mirrors the structure that the 12 tribes, these 12 world, words, mirror their structure, reflect the ideology of the 12 tribes, which are the pillars of the 12 months and the 12 constellations of the physical universe. The Magalia Mukos points out that when Jacob is running for his life from his brother, Esau, who wants to kill him, he goes to sleep at a certain point, 
and he doesn't realize it, but he's sleeping in the place that's going to be the holy temple in Jerusalem, the Beis Migdash. doesn't know it at the time. He's afraid he's going to be eaten by wild animals while he's asleep. So he surrounds his head with 12 stones to protect him. They say that those 12 stones are the 12 tribes that are going to come out of him. But when he wakes up in the morning, all 12 have become one stone. And the Magalia Muko says, what are those 12 stones and how do they become one? Because the 12 stones represent the words, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, the heavens, and Baruch Shem Kavod, Machus Oleilam Ve'ed, Machus, the earth, all coming together as one. This is what Jacob was going to bring into the world. Okay. Now I saw another example of this, which is, from Rabbeinu Bukhaya. He says before the Torah was presented to the Jewish people, the Jewish people said, all the words that Hashem has spoken, we will do. All right? That's um, chapter 24, verse 3 in, in Shmos. That's six words. Kol hadavarim, two, asher diber, four, Hashem na'aseh, six. And then after that, they say in verse 7, everything that Hashem has spoken, we will do and we will obey. Right? That's the famous, the famous phrase that we all know. Kol asher diber Hashem na Now I don't have to tell you how many words that is, because you already know. Six. So six and six is twelve. Before we receive the Torah, the Jewish people say, now it's not the twelve sons saying it, now it's the 12 tribes saying it. Right before we receive the Torah, which is the blueprint of the universe and the document of the oneness of Hashem. So now that I've told you that everything is 12, I'll tell you the real truth. It's really 13. <laughs> now, 13, <laughs> we don't have lucky numbers in Judaism. You can have your favorite numbers, but they're not your lucky numbers. Because <laughs> when you get into lucky numbers, it's already issues of idol worship here going on, okay? You're entitled to have your favorite numbers. So <laughs> Just don't think that the number itself has a power. Every number has something special about it, okay? But it doesn't have a, a power in and of itself. That, that's problematic from a Jewish standpoint. Now, we don't have lucky numbers, but the non-Jewish world has unlucky numbers, that's for sure. And perhaps their most favorite unlucky number is the number 13. But for us, the number 13 is fantastic. We love the number 13. And I'll tell you why. And this is where we're going to get deeper. Okay? And we're going to go back to Adar and we're going to go back to Purim. Because what happens when you add Yaakov Avinu to the 12 tribes? What do you get? You get 13. When we stand at the end of Yom Kippur, at Ne'ilah, the culmination of Yom Kippur, the holiest moment of the entire year, what do we say over and over and over and over and over again? The 13 mitos of forgiveness of God. When after the sin of the golden calf, Hashem said, listen, Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm going to write you the prayer. Right? You know, like your late note? Like God himself says, I'm going to write you the prayer that's going to gain forgiveness in my eyes. Recite my 13 attributes of mercy. Right? 
We also have 13 ways of deriving the truth of the Torah, of a Yishmael. We read it in the mornings. So why is 13 significant? Because 13 means beyond the natural order. See, a lot of people are familiar with this concept, but they've just heard it expressed with the number 7 and 8. That 7 is like 7 days of the week, and 8 is what we say, like above the natural order, like the light of Hanukkah. You know, interestingly, the number 8, if you turn it on its side, it makes the, it's the infinity symbol. Right? So a lot of people are familiar with this dynamic between 7 and 8. But in Torah, this same relationship exists between the numbers 12 and 13 as well. That 13 is beyond the natural order. Now listen to this. Every few years we have something called um, a leap year. And we add an extra month to the calendar. We add a 13th month to the calendar. And this is one of the years that we do it. And interestingly, this whole idea of God existing within concealment, right? Because what could be more concealed than the 12th month? The 13th month, right? Mm -hmm. That's like, and what tribe correlates with the 13th month? Because there are only 12 tribes. So Rabbi Wolfson brings down something very beautiful. You know, there were stragglers in the desert. You know, it's, Torah is always very amazing. One of the beautiful things, let's just talk about just Torah study for a moment. One of the beautiful things about Torah is that it's exceedingly rigorous and, 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 and logical and intellectual, but at the same time, there's a, another side of it which is totally miraculous, right? And, and, but, but the people who are, who are rigorous in terms of their Torah study are trying to constantly reconcile the two sides, right? You have to, you have to. Because remember, when we talk about the four levels of understanding the Torah, it's called pardes, pshat, the literal meaning of the text, remez, already you're making association between different words, then you have drush, you're, you're almost like, you know, um, using the text as a jumping off point to make more of a homiletical interpretation. And then so the secrets of the Torah. But it's all one. You can't just say, well, I'm not a sod guy. I'm not a secrets guy. But I, you know, but I'm, I'm a serious Torah scholar. You're not. You're not. You have to be someone who straddles both sides and everything in between and reconcile all of it. So someone was just sharing with me a, a Ramban, and I'm, I'm, the, the reason why I'm bringing up this is, is just to hear the question, not so much the answer, um, but to hear the question. The question is the, the following. We say that, um, that, that uh, you know, when Yitzchak Avinu, when Isaac was put on the altar, and Abraham, you know, thought he's supposed to sacrifice him, Right? And then the angel says, no, don't do it. And then God reveals that there's a ram caught in the thickets. Go, take the, take the ram and sacrifice that instead. So that ram, they say, was actually created on the sixth day of creation before, before Shabbos, before the first Shabbos. One of the things at twilight, right before Shabbos, there's a whole list of miraculous things that were created, and that's considered to be one of them, the, that ram. By the way, Different Torah scholars 
have a question on that. They want to say, like, what's the deal with the ram? <laughs> like, was it really like, like, like a couple of thousand years old that ram? <laughs> you know, or like, like what's going on with the ram? Like, and I saw. I believe it was Rabbeinu Bechaya. He said something really fascinating. I love this. Listen to this. He said that the the, pre, the ram that they used was actually a reincarnation of that ram. Now you've heard you've heard of people being reincarnated into animals, but have you ever heard from an animal being reincarnated into another animal? So this is this is actually a very very interesting idea, you know. Um, but, um, but anyway, so, so this ram is very, very special, obviously. And they say that when the, when the, you know, when the Torah was given, Hashem blew a shofar and it got louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. And they say like, that's different from human beings. When a human being blows a shofar, it gets louder and then you run out of breath. It gets softer, but this one just got louder. And that was from the ram, that chauffeur was from the ram that was offered instead of Isaac. And what about the other ram? That is going to be the chauffeur at the time of Mashiach. Okay, so this is all very mystical. What, what I just told you, this is very mystical. So now here's why I'm telling it to you. Because the Ramban asked the following question. That ram was a Korban Ola. A Korban Ola means that the entire thing was turned into ashes. If the whole thing was turned into ashes, there's no horn left. So what are you going to blow? Just appreciate the question. He's taking, he's taking this very mystical teaching extremely seriously and now asking a very practical question. What do you, where, where's the horn? It got burnt to ashes. So he gives an answer which is that Hashem gathered those ashes and brought the horn back. And um, my friend Gedaya Gerfein said to me that he felt like there, that there was very beautiful like rebirth after the Holocaust imagery there. That like how Hashem has gathered the ashes and we've seen a tremendous renaissance among the Jewish people. State of Israel, Torah study flourishing, like never before, like amazing things happening. But nonetheless, just the methodology of this is consistent and across the board with all serious Torah students trying to reconcile both ends of the Torah, the mystical and taking it very seriously, and, and it's a battle back, and, and other Mephorshim will have different answers to this. But just appreciate the, the approach. Okay. So now, let's go back to Adar. So, so, again, the reason why I actually brought this up is because I was asking the question, what's the 13th tribe? Because we know there are 12 sons, but what's the 13th tribe? So, so when the, the Jewish people traveled through the desert, they were protected by this, this cloud. It was, they were called the Ananeha Kavid. They were clouds of glory that protected them from every side. And they said that they were actually bulletproof, too, like if you... If the Jewish people were attacked with arrows, they would just bounce off it. So it was this heavenly protection, okay, that was, that, that, that was given to us. 
But now here's where it becomes more exact again, which is why I brought up the idea of the, the horns. At a certain point, when the Jewish people were told to just decamp, like because we traveled around for 40 years, and some places we were there just for a short period of time, other places we were there for years, by the way. So we weren't marching around all the time, you know? So when it came time to pick up and leave, there were stragglers. There were people who were like, who missed their flight? They got to the airport late, basically. And so these people actually traveled behind the clouds without this protection. And again, there, what, what I like about that, what I think is interesting about that, is that, you know, if you ask me, I say, look, as long as you're going to have clouds, you know, have to put, put them over everyone. You know what I mean? Like, but no, even at the time of miracles, right, because these clouds were absolutely miraculous, they said that you didn't have to go to, to, to clean your clothes. They cleaned your clothes for you. Right? So it was like 24-hour dry cleaning service. Uh, and they came to you. So if, you, if you're going to already say, okay, my premise is there was miraculous protection and everything like that, why are you introducing this new category of people who were late for their appointment and didn't, didn't get into the cloud protection coverage? Because that's this world. And Rabbi Wolfson says that's the 13th tribe. The 13th tribe was the ones who were too lackadaisical and too spiritually low to take God's instructions, we're leaving at this time, be at this spot, let's go. They didn't take it seriously. They were too spiritually low. And as a result, they missed the protection of the cloud coverage. And as a result, that's the part of the Jewish people that was attacked by Amalek. Because if you ask yourself, if these cloud covers were like basically impregnable, how did, what, what are you talking about a war with Amalek attacking? How can Amalek attack? These are the people who were attacked. The ones who trailed behind. But, says Rabbi Wolfson, something very beautiful. You think that maybe because they were left out of the cloud protection, that therefore they're left out of the Jewish people. That they're too low to deserve inclusion. But chas v'shalom, God forbid you should say such a thing. Because we're all one group. From, from the top to the bottom, we're all one group. And, 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 and we're all included. And so they're the tribe of the 13th month, which says that even, even sort of like the, the ones who are just hanging on are as essential to the Jewish people and are as included as the rest of us. And again, Privilege to the same salvation because the 13th month correlates with when Purim is. Because when there are 13 months in the year, Purim is in the 13th month. And that's about salvation amidst the darkness. Okay, but I want to make a deeper point. 12, I said, stands for the natural order. 13 already represents beyond the natural order or the supernatural, if you will. But how the, the supernatural manifest in nature in the most interesting way, like the miracle of Purim. No splitting of the sea. No bread raining down from heaven. 
just a natural series of events that when you look at them in retrospect, you realize are absolutely supernatural. So now listen to this. I want to tell you something from the Gomorrah and Pesachim. Okay? And it, it uh, has to do with the salvation of Avraham Avinu from the Kivshon the Ha'esh, which is the fiery furnace. Nimrod threw Avraham into this furnace, which was, who knows, like a thousand degrees. It's fire. No one in the world can possibly like, survive that. It's a, it's a furnace. You, you can't live in it. Okay. So there was a conversation up in heaven. And the Malach, the angel Gavriel, says to God, let me go down and save Avraham. And God says back to Gavriel, no, Avraham, who is the one below, because he's really representing God, right? He's, he's talking about the oneness of God. It's only appropriate that the one above should save the one below. So, but then Hashem promises Gavriel that his time will come to do his thing. Cut to later in Jewish history. And Nebuchadnezzar threw three of our greatest tzaddikim also into a fiery furnace. Okay, their names were Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah. And now there was a conversation up in heaven. Now listen to this fascinating, fascinating conversation. The angel of hell, that's like ice, says to God, let me go down there and save them and put out the fire. And then the angel Gabriel is told, no, it's better that you do it. Now Gabriel is like representing fire at this moment. So, so, The argument that's made is what's better to put out the fire in terms of sanctifying God's name, not in terms of practicality. Hail, ice, should water put out fire or should fire put out fire? Well, we have a big problem here because fire can't put out fire. You can't cool down something with a flame. So the angel Gabriel is told to go down and to save Avraham from the fire with fire. Why? Now listen to this. This is the point. Because, you see, in a lot of people's minds, they don't understand how actually radical a theology Torah is. Torah is a radical theology. Because when we talk about the oneness of God... We're talking about that there is no other power. There simply is no other power in the entire world. It's not that our God is stronger than your God. There are no other gods. There are no other powers. Now, even people will say, well, listen, I'm very religious. I don't, I don't, um, I, I don't believe in other gods. But still, a lot of people, even if they don't think about it, think of nature as a separate power. And so, so if ice... If water puts out fire, the message that's going to be communicated is that God is stronger than nature, but that they're two separate powers. 
It just happens to be that God has the tools to overcome nature when he wants to. But if fire puts out fire, and let's keep in mind, fire can put out fire. <laughs> fire can cool down fire. If fire puts out fire, then the whole world will understand there's only one power. There is no nature and God. It's only God. And so Hashem says, you wanted to save Avraham, Gabriel. I'm making it up to you. You go down and save these three. That, by the way, if you want to see that inside, that's uh, the Gomorrah in Pesachim 118b. So now, let's see how that informs what we've been talking about, about the month of Adar, about this structure of 12 and 13. You see, there is a natural order. We can't run in front of a car. We have to respect the power of nature. There is a certain set of rules that Hashem has set up and asks us to respect them. This is very much true, right? But at the same time, we have to understand that nature isn't an independent power. And that's why in this order of 12, Hashem says, no, it's really an order of 13. Because really it's all me. And by the way, you know, it's just hitting me right now. I can't believe it took me so slow to realize this. 13 is the gematria of echad, of one. Because when we're talking about the number of 13, we're really saying that God is one. In other words, it's not that there's a natural order and God. That the whole natural order is within the oneness of God. And so, every once in a while, doesn't happen all the time, God throws in the 13th month. Which is this X factor to show us that he's controlling the natural order all of the time. And that 13th month contains the holiday of Purim, which is all about total concealment when you think that God has absolutely abandoned us and then you realize he was there the entire time. And that's the dual nature of Adar, that on one hand it's the furthest away from Nisan, the furthest away from the revelation of the light, and at the same time, if you make a circle with it, it's right there. Have a good week. So, so the question is, if you look in the Torah, th there's a very kind of mysterious thing that's going on, which is that every single time the 12 tribes are mentioned, it's always in a completely different order. Like, for instance, just to give you one example, the, the high priest, um, the Kohen Gadol, had a breastplate, and he had 12 stones on it, and each one of those stones correlated with a different tribe. But so, so, so when the Torah lists those stones, it lists them in the order of the, uh, the birth order. So it begins with Ruvain and goes from there. Ruvain and then Shimon, and then Levi. Um, so, uh, but when you look at the way the Torah describes the encampment in the desert, it's a completely different uh, order. And by the way, I, I meant to mention it earlier, the order 
that when the Jewish people were surrounding Yaakov Avinu's um, deathbed, the order of the sons, the arrangement of the sons around his deathbed was the exact order that they encamped in the desert, but now around the Sefer Torah, the Ark with the Ten Commandments in it. Right? Um, so, every single time the 12 tribes are mentioned, it's in a completely different order. Every time. So, why is that? And so I want to offer a, an answer just, just from me right now. Which is that, you see, we have a, a very strong principle in Torah, which is that God is constantly recreating the world every single moment. So, the natural order itself is constantly in flux. So, and, and what God brings into reality from moment to moment is, is dependent on a number of different variables. What is our level of merit at that moment? Um, what, what fixing do we most need at that moment? Either for our present lives or past lives, what direction do we need to be shepherded into going forward into the future so that we'll have the opportunities that we need and our children and our grandchildren will need? So all these different um, accounts, what, what is the strength and the level of our prayers? Right? So all of these things are being factored into creating every single moment at a time. But the point is, is that reality itself is, is constantly in flux and constantly um, this dialogue between where we are and what God wants from us and desires from us and how we can best reveal the oneness of God. So if 12, as we're saying, represents the natural order, doesn't it make sense that every time the Torah lists the 12 tribes, it's in a different order? in order to reflect on the constantly changing and evolving nature of reality itself. 